The following is presented to you in around sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak unless it's something worse singing. Don't play the girl, take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxurious thing. Carries herself like the cutest, most prettiest thing you see this side of the bay. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, end-of-the-year reflections, questions, and intentions, we cover it all. This podcast is based in Oakland, California, the center of the known universe, where we are still dealing with Rona and Reconstruction. It's a challenging time. It's a changing time. It's a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99 because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. Now, y'all, it is the last day of 2021. Hallelujah. And we have quite a surprise for you. Well, It's probably not really a surprise because I've been asking you all week to send me your questions and your intentions for 2022. So today is the day that I am going to reach into our mailbag. I'm going to answer all the questions I can and find out your hopes for 2022. I cannot wait. So let us jump into it. First question is from Fangirl. Hey, Fangirl. Would you ever run for public office? Um, yeah, I would run for public office if it was a part of a larger strategy to build and wield power for my folks. Um, I right now concentrate on supporting people who are running for office who I believe have a progressive vision for what our communities can and should look like. And I really want to make sure that there's Black folks represented. But I never support Black folks just because they're Black. I support Black people who have a progressive vision for what can happen in our communities. Now, I am a Black person with a progressive vision for what can happen in our communities. And like I said, if there was a strategy and a team that I was working with to get a bunch of us in office so that we could move a strategy to wield power, I would definitely be up for it. Keep me in mind. Next question. Any new thoughts on London Breed now that she has gone back and allocated more money for policing instead of redirecting it elsewhere? This is from Anonymous. We got a couple questions like this, so I did want to make sure to answer. And I'm afraid, dear listeners, that my answer to this question is going to be a little bit complicated. Needless to say, I should do a disclaimer that um, we had a wonderful episode on this podcast with Mayor London Breed, who has done incredible things in San Francisco. We also know that London, in her role as mayor, has in some ways um, been embattled. And from my take on what I see happening uh, in the city— You know, some of the criticisms that she receives, I think, are deserved, but a lot of them aren't. And in a lot of ways, I think and have seen a lot of nastiness coming at London Breed, not necessarily based on her policies. And I have a big problem with that. With that being said, I am paying attention to what's happening in San Francisco. I did see the announcement that she made, um, and I've been following some of the responses to it. And I got to say, y'all, I feel complicated on this. Now, of course, what I do not feel complicated about 
is giving more money to police. I don't think that police prevent crime. I think they respond to it. Um, And I've said that many, many times on this podcast, and I will not waver from that. With that being said, I have talked to several of my friends who live, work, and love and organize in the Tenderloin, and not everybody is on the same page here. Rightfully so, there are some people who are deeply concerned about increasing police presence um, in this community, and that makes sense to me. On the other hand, there are people who are our friends, who are on our side of things, who are honest enough to acknowledge that there are some real crises happening in that community. And so the big question becomes not whether or not I agree with London Breed, but the question becomes, as progressives, what do we do about harm and violence that is happening? We cannot deny or not acknowledge that things are not great. And things have not been great in the TL for a long time. And as somebody who is a lifelong Bay Area resident, somebody who organized in and near the Tenderloin for a long time, uh, I can tell you that we can't just say put a ton of money into services and not address the actual harm and violence that is also happening. And while I do believe that investing in services, investing in support is both immediate and a long-term solution uh, to how we deal with harm and violence, um, I don't think progressives are really good at this question of how do we intervene immediately in harm and violence that is happening. It's a weakness of ours. And so my um, plea to us would be, put some stuff on the table. What do we do about the fact that there are robberies? What do we do about the fact that there are people, not like rich, wealthy tourists, but people who've lived and loved and organized in that community for a long time who feel less safe? Uh, I think we have to address these questions and we have to address them honestly. And I really trust the people who are doing that organizing, who live in that community, who have those relationships to put forward those solutions. And my hope would be that you all are working closely with the mayor to really implement some strategies that can address some of the immediate harms that are happening while also not taking your eye off the long game. Uh, So with that being said, you know, I'm watching, I'm listening, and I'm learning. And I think the mayor is too. And I hope that you are too. So send me your thoughts, ideas, proposals about how you think that gets done. But before you send them to me, send them to the mayor. Love (laughs) y'all. Let us go and talk about the next question, which is, do you have any thoughts on the San Francisco Unified School District Board of Education recall? This recall negatively impacts BIPOC folks. I hate that term more than anything in the world, but I know what you're trying to say here. Um, This recall negatively impacts people of color, right, and uh, others, especially a Black woman who is a Board of Education Commissioner. Listeners want to know where you stand. Well, I want to thank you for this question. I don't know who sent it. It seems like it's an anonymous one. Um, But I I do want to say here that I think a lot of the recalls that are happening in San Francisco are a little bit bogus. Um, We saw and are still seeing a recall that is being levied against uh, District Attorney Chesa Boudin. Um, And we are seeing uh, recall efforts on the Board of Education in San Francisco. All of us know that boards of education and school boards across the country are being targeted by the right wing and by the conservative movement. And this particular Board of Education, I have been following uh, some of the, the kind of vitriol that is being thrown around. And I would just say this. I think it's really, really important to make sure that we understand the broader context in which things are operating. And I also think it's important for commissioners to get things done. And in a lot of ways, my concern here is that um, there may be a gap, right? As far as I understand, uh, this particular Black woman who's a Board of Education commissioner has come under fire for some comments that she's made. Uh, I don't think that that is necessarily a great reason to recall folks. I also know that um, public education in San Francisco, throughout California, and throughout the country is in crisis. 
And my hope is that we can defeat this recall so that we can focus on the task at hand, which is making sure that all young people in San Francisco have access to a quality, relevant, substantive education that will prepare them for navigating the world around them. Um, And as long as we're getting distracted by these kinds of recalls that I think are really intended more to make a point as opposed to improve governance, then we're in a real pickle. So that's where I stand on that. Next question. Um, Thank you for being my North Star. This is from Sad Girl, who identifies as they and them. Thank you for being my North Star. Every week, you teach me how to be in the world and understand it. You keep me afloat. I lost a 10-year partnership around the same time as you this year, and it broke me. My question is, how do you heal a broken heart? Also, will you be appearing publicly before you leave the Bay? The people want to know how we can give you the proper send-off you deserve. You are deeply loved and you will be missed. Well, sad girl, I appreciate you. And I will say I have been all up in my feels these last couple of days because my move is approaching closer every single day. I'm not sure if I'll be appearing publicly before I leave the Bay. And by publicly, I mean, am I going to like organize a public event? I don't know. It depends on what my time is looking like. However, I will let you know if there is a public send-off that you can come to because I would love it if you would come by and say hi and goodbye. Other thing you should know is that the Bay is my home and I will be back here, child. I'll be back here a lot. So don't think you're never going to see me again. You probably will run into me at the lake or, mm, I don't know, I don't really go grocery shopping anymore. Damn these apps. Uh, But you might run into me somewhere. You never know. All right, let's get back to the task at hand, which is really talking about how you heal a broken heart. Mm. Well, first of all, I am so, so sorry to hear about the end of your relationship. And as you know, and as I've been very, very vocal about here on this podcast, um, I went through a similar process this year. And as I wrap up 2021, I've been thinking a lot about where I'm at in that transition. I don't know that I can give you any good advice about how to heal a broken heart because I am still healing my own, but I will say that the number one thing it takes is time. And that's the least satisfying answer, but it's the most truthful one I can give. You know, I'll say that I have felt the wide range of emotions every single day for the last like six months. And that's just been since the separation's been real. But honestly, you know, in the lead up to the thing and the whole thing, it's just you go through the roller coaster of all of it. And it's important just to give yourself room and time to grieve. You've had a big loss and there's a big change happening in your life. And fortunately and unfortunately, you can't speed that up. You can't slow it down. It kind of has to take the pace that it takes. And in the meantime, just be good to yourself. Try not to beat yourself up. Try to look at yourself bravely, but don't tear yourself apart. That's a really important point. Partnerships end, things end, and then things begin again. And it's really, really deeply important just to give yourself some room to grieve, to be kind to yourself, to look at yourself courageously and look at what you had with this other person and just be grateful for it. Even though it's painful that it's no longer happening, Who would we be without it? So that's my big advice. I'll let you know if anything changes, but good luck. You're going to make it one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, one breath by breath. Okay, let's go to the next one. This was a three-part question from somebody awesome, Andrew Willis Garces who identifies as he and him. Um, I'm only going to do one of your questions, Andrew, because each one of your questions was so, so, so rich that I wanted to give it the time that it deserved. So this is the one that we picked. Last year, you published a book about building power by building a base. And I bought copies for a bunch of up-and-coming organizers I know. So grateful you wrote it. 
and shared with us some of your bedrock principles for base building. In surveying both the landscape of organizing by building a base in the last year and your own beliefs about how to do it well, which belief felt most challenged by what you experienced or witnessed in the last 12 months? What made you think, now this is different? And which belief was most affirmed by what you saw go down? This is such a good question, and I really, really want to thank you for it. And I'm going to say that this year was so weirdly tumultuous because we were in and out and in and out and in and out of a pandemic. And so base building in the way I know it um, certainly has been upended. A couple of observations that I can make from this last year and just from our own experience of really trying to engage people, engage people closely and engage them well and consistently, is that even in a world that has gone largely virtual, there really is no replacement for face-to-face organizing. And some of the best work that I saw this year really involved people learning how to bring people together safely and not shying away from that. I will tell you that um, one of the biggest challenges and struggles that we had, even on my team this year, um, was trying to figure out, you know, how do we balance being safe with also making sure that we're connecting with people. And I will say that something that was affirmed for me 100% is that you cannot organize people effectively from behind a computer screen. And believe me, we tried. My team used all kinds of digital tools and engagement things um, to try to get people out and activated. But at the end of the day, people are just not fully compelled by what you see on Facebook. They're not fully compelled by getting a piece of mail in their mailbox. Um, What they are compelled by is having a personal relationship with the person who is asking them to take action. And so some of the best examples of organizing that I saw this year uh, actually include the work from one of our former guests on this show, uh, one of... I think only two people to ever grace the podcast twice, uh, which is the work of Mondale Robinson and the Black Male Voter Project. Uh, They have been doing these incredible focus groups around the country where they're bringing Black men together and having conversations about what's important to them and why. And in the process of that, right, they're building relationship, they're activating people, they're addressing people's immediate needs. And asking them to imagine what it would look like if politics did the same. And so I think, you know, folks should take a look at what they're doing and try to replicate a child because I'm going to say to you right now, um, if we're not talking to people face to face, then we're really losing out on almost everything. And in a world that has become increasingly digital, where people feel incredibly isolated, it actually matters to be in community with people. And that just doesn't happen through Zoom. It doesn't happen behind a Facebook ad. It doesn't happen behind a piece of mail. It happens by saying, you know what? I will do what I got to do to make sure that you know that you and I are connected no matter what. Um, So that's what I'm going to offer here. And it's something that I think is going to be really important for the 2022 midterm elections. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in this podcast. Um, let me also say that I think the other thing that I really affirmed this year as it relates to base building is that part of what base building has to look like is also engaging in the culture war. Um, and not doing that with black folks from a perspective of trying to tell us what it is that we need, but instead asking us to tap into what we already know. You know, it's interesting this week I was watching a panel conversation on Tiffany Cross's show, Cross Connection, but Tiffany was actually guest hosting for Joy Reid, who uh, is another um, illustrious guest. Both of them uh, have been illustrious guests on this podcast. And the whole conversation that they were having yesterday was about critical race theory and the way in which critical race theory has been weaponized in all of these ways 
to motivate and activate white voters uh, to vote for racism, which is actually not in their interest. But still, we have this deep problem in this country where we have assigned a whole bunch of negative stereotypes and attributes and life circumstances to people based on false pretenses, and people buy into it. Now, the conversation that folks were having yesterday was really about how the Republican Party, how conservatives and how the conservative movement have weaponized critical race theory to motivate voters and how they did so, in fact, in the Virginia election and and in the gubernatorial election, but also uh, in the, I think it's called like the Board of Advocates or some shit like that. Anywho, here's my point. At some point in the conversation, they were saying that it is actually a falsehood that the conservative movement or the Republican Party is doing really much of anything to organize Black voters. And Tiffany made the argument that um, the Republican Party has never really had an interest in organizing Black voters. In fact, their sole interest is in suppressing Black voters. And it brought up for me, and it brought up in the conversation, how this conversation and discussion about critical race theory impacts different groups of voters differently. Um, You'll excuse the voting references, but this is what I think about all the time as it relates to building power, especially building power for and with Black communities. So it, it was interesting because in this conversation, what they were saying was, you know, White voters, right, who were being uh, manipulated uh, by this conversation about critical race theory, um, voted to keep conversations about race out of schools. But when Black voters went to the polls, the reason Black voters went to the polls and identified education as one of their core issues had nothing to do with critical race theory, which we already know is not being taught in K through 12 schools. And if you didn't know that, Well, child, we got other things to talk about. But the big point here was that actually Black voters picked education as one of their top issues because they're concerned about the quality of public education. Black voters uh, and Black families, right, are more than half of the public school education system. And yet when we talk about white voters being driven to the polls around education and critical race theory, well, Those voters and those families don't even comprise the majority of these school districts where supposedly critical race theory is being taught, which it is not being taught. Here's my point. There is a culture war that is raging right now. And when we're thinking about building a base, we also have to contend with people's ideas about how the world works and why. And when it comes to Black voters in particular, and if you want to build a base of Black people, you have to actually understand what Black people care about. Black people don't care about critical race theory. We don't even think about critical race theory in that way. We think about critical race theory as like history, okay? (laughs) But what we do care about, right, are these bread and butter issues that actually only get assigned significance when we're talking about white voters. This is a huge issue as it relates to electoral organizing, as it relates to investing in Black voters and communities of color, participating in the decisions that impact our lives, and also being activated and engaged in those issues. And as long as there is this disconnect, we are going to have a Democratic Party that focuses only on trying to win over voters who are being swayed by racist arguments when on the other side of this are a whole bunch of voters who are being ignored, who are not being swayed by any of these racist arguments and actually support a robust progressive agenda, but nobody's talking to us. So the key lesson here is learn how to talk to Black voters, but also understand that Black voters and voters of color can actually be a critical weapon in fighting back against the culture wars that are being unleashed against our communities by the conservative movement. So I hope I gave you a robust answer because it was a robust question. And the other ones we'll just have to come back to. Thank you so much, Andrew, for your questions. (sighs) Okay. Next question is, 
Do you have advice for people in leadership roles for how lonely it often is to be a leader? I feel so isolated as a manager that I'm considering changing jobs. Advice for how to cope? Signed, Lonely Leader in the North Bay. I so appreciate this question. And I have been talking about this for the better part of 15 years. So let's discuss. First and foremost, I am so sorry that you feel lonely in this role that you're in. And I don't believe that you should have to feel this lonely. I do think that we have a culture around leadership that is incredibly isolating, that is incredibly alienating. And in the nonprofit or progressive side of things, where we're actually trying to get things done and improve conditions in our communities, this is a real challenge. It's a challenge because we're actually replicating a corporate culture inside of organizations that are supposed to be liberatory um, and that are supposed to be seeking to end disparities. And so I I just want to say, number one, it is really important to make leadership transparent. Now, when I say that, this is what I mean. I don't mean that everybody gets to question every single decision that you've ever made about anything. And sometimes people do that in organizations because they've never held leadership roles. So that's not what I'm talking about. And I actually would encourage us to stop doing that. But what I mean by making more transparent what it means to be in leadership is to engage more people in the decisions that you are having to make and the weight and the impact of them. You know, when I first became an executive director uh, at the ripe age of 20-something child, I actually hated it because I went from somebody who came up through the ranks in the organization. I started as as like a baby organizer and kind of moved my way up. And eventually I ended up at the helm of this organization. And I found very suddenly that people questioned me in a way that they had never questioned me before. Um, I found very suddenly that people tested me in a way that they had never tested me before. And I found it so deeply toxic. So what I did to address it um, was address it. (laughs) I actually talked very openly with my team about what I was seeing and what I was experiencing from them. And I asked them to reflect on the why. I also engaged and included them in all of the things that I was weighing as I was making decisions. I think sometimes people assume that if you're in a leadership position, that you just have all the answers off top, that there aren't things that keep you up at night, and that there aren't big choices that you have to weigh because you're responsible for them at the end of the day. One of the things I think people miss, and I include myself in this, before I ever held a leadership role, I would look at people in leadership and I would have a lot of thoughts about what I would do if and when I was ever in that position. But the fact of the matter is I had never been in that position. And so I was looking and judging um, what people were doing with no basis for that judgment. Now, with that being said, once I understood from being in the role, all the things that I had to weigh and all the things that the people before me had had to weigh, I felt like I could be a little bit softer in supporting leadership as opposed to feeling like my default position had to be in opposition to it. Now, with that being said, I do think that it opened up more conversation about what type of leadership we wanted to practice in the organization. And I think it also encouraged other people to step up as leaders. And that is also important. As a leader, um, the buck does stop with you, but it doesn't mean that your team gets to shirk responsibility. If you're going to make decisions together, you're also going to hold the consequences and responsibilities of those decisions together. So I'll leave it there. I I think that that's a a good place to start. So, you know, talk with your team about what it's like to be you. Allow them to ask you questions about what it's like to be you, but also explain to them what your boundaries are and why you have them and why they function that way. Um, I think the more transparent you can be about why you're doing what you're doing, inviting them to also be in your shoes and inviting them to deliberate with you while being clear about what the parameters are, you may see some openings happen. And if you don't, well, then I think maybe that's more of like an organizational culture thing. And at that point, you should really decide 
Am I able to make a positive impact on this culture? Is it up to me? Do I have the power to help impact how it is that we hold leaders and leadership in organizations? And if you don't feel like you do, or if you feel like it's only on you, I don't really believe in that either. And you might want to find a place that's more suitable for helping to grow and nurture your leadership. That's it from Lady on that question. We have a couple more, and I am so excited to get into them. Here we go. Our next question. I know that you are optimistic by nature, but do you think that democracy truly is teetering on the edge of total collapse, or is that hyperbole? One of my intentions for the new year is to hopefully see Lady Don't Take No podcast live in Atlanta. Love you, Alicia. Jen Louisa. Jen, this is an excellent, excellent question. And let me start by saying democracy is truly teetering on the edge of total collapse. And that is not hyperbole. Um, Look, y'all, I've never been as scared about this as I've been in these last couple of years. We've never seen a true democracy in this country. So I have to start by saying that. But we do know what the parameters should look like. And even those very weak parameters are being whittled away every single day as we speak. And some of that has to do with increasing corporate influence um, on our laws and governments. And a lot of it actually has to do with um, the way we practice democracy in this country, which is that we don't. Democracy is also very much about participation. And as you probably know, uh, the United States has, I think, the lowest levels of participation as it relates to governance than around the world in democratic societies. What that leads to is that people don't really see the fire until mm, it's not even smoke, right? Because we've been seeing smoke for a while, but it's like you don't even really see the fire until somebody's like banging through your walls with a pickaxe. Um, and your walls are on fire, and you are dying of smoke inhalation. Not to do too much with that metaphor here, but I do want to say, when we look at all the voter suppression laws happening across the nation, when we look at what's happening with the Supreme Court, when we look at what's happening with the increasing radicalization um, of the Republican Party and the conservative movement and their um, ability to take almost total power, um, we should be very concerned about the state of what is remaining of our democracy. And we should be fighting like hell right now um, for the tatters of it. You can't build a thing from nothing, right? And even though democracy is deeply, deeply imperfect right now, um, we have a framework, we have a house, and we need to make sure that that house gets some walls. But right now, they are trying to gut this house. They are trying to gentrify this house. And they are trying to make sure, frankly, that this house doesn't exist again. And that, my friend, is not hyperbole. Thank you. Thank you for your question. And I love your intention for the new year. It's mine too. I am hoping that we can have a Lady Don't Take No Live podcast from Atlanta and from a ton of other cities across the nation. So stay tuned. I know me and Phil are kind of trying to wrap our heads around this. How do we do it? Where do we do it? What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? We got some big things happening in 2022. So we'll keep you informed. Stay tuned. Next question that we have on our list is, woo, and this one, Cha. Well, it was very kind. What is the best way to slide into your DMs? Signed, I got a crush. All right. Well, first and foremost, thank you for the question. And I don't know. I don't know. I guess just slide. I don't know. You know, I've been pretty vocal lately about how I'm not really dating right now. Um, And that's not because I'm like swearing it off. It's just totally like a new realm for me. So there's that. 
And then also, um, I'm busy. I got a lot of stuff going on. So um, feel free to slide, but also come correct because I'm going to tell you right now, while I am not dating, I have entertained uh, some folk. And I will tell you, child, um, don't bring no raggedy mess up into my DMs. If you know that you are messy, if you know that you are manipulative, if you know that you are not emotionally intelligent, if you know that you be lying, if you know that you still got some work to do and you haven't really taken steps to do your work, please don't bring your shit over here. Please, please, really, please. My heart is tender, okay? So if you're going to come in my DMs, bring something to the table because I know I definitely do. Other than that, slide away. Next up on the questions list, I'm like, shit, was that honest or what? It just, it really is. Like, please don't bring me any bullshit. I really don't need it. Like, for real. Okay. Um, next question on the question list is, what did you think of the Insecure finale? Specifically, what are your thoughts on Issa and Lawrence getting back together? Well, child, I first want to say, I freaking love this show. I love insecure. I loved awkward black girl. So shout out to Issa Rae. Girl, you really did a thing. You really did a thing. And thank you for doing it for us. Thank you for doing it for the culture. Thank you for letting us see ourselves in real ways. These weren't like hella bougie ass black people in sororities and fraternities, no shade to the Greek organizations, but these were like black folk. And I liked it. I liked what you brought to the table. And I liked how messy characters were. And I liked how you know, their lives were a mess. I think it really just reflected like what it means for us to try to navigate the world. With that being said, I was not feeling the finale. I wasn't. I really the fuck wasn't. And I'm just going to keep it a buck. Um, thank you for giving it to us. But I, I, I got to just be clear about a thing. I really, I wasn't rooting for Issa and Lawrence. I really wasn't. I really wasn't. I was actually rooting for Issa and Daniel. I think Daniel really had something to bring to the table. And I felt like Lawrence was still messy as shit all the way up to the end, child. Like all the way up to the end. So yeah, maybe he got his shit together, but most likely it probably took him a lot longer than that. Um, I also thought Lawrence broke some trust and it just never did it for me, child. So that was it for me. I didn't think their connection was that deep. I really thought Daniel was somebody who, you know, they had spark. They had fire. Daniel seemed like he could just really give the business to Issa, like in all the ways. And I really wanted that for her because her life was such a mess. She should at least be having good sex, honey. And then I also felt like her and Daniel actually shared interests, right? Like, I never got the sense that Lawrence gave a shit about social justice. I never got a sense that Lawrence gave a shit about really anything. I felt like Daniel was like deep in his music making. I feel like he would have been really down with what Issa was doing and it would have influenced him. And yeah, I wanted that to happen. So yeah, there's that. Um, I also will say one character that I think just didn't get their due was Tiffany Dubois. Like, we had a whole season where Tiffany was like postpartum depression and all the shit. And then that just like went away. And then she just like, what, moved to Colorado in like a completely white community and didn't have any kind of breakdown. She was already kind of fragile, honey. And then the last episode, she's pregnant again. And we're just not going to talk about that. Like, I just I thought it could have tied together a little bit more. But like I said, Issa, thank you for doing it for the culture, sis. I really appreciated it. And this is also another show that I will binge watch. Last question for today. This one is from our guest, Mondale Robinson. And the question is, what path do the Democrats have for a 2022 victory when they show up with Black folks' needs in the trunk of a 1972 Buick? <laughs> Ooh. Well, first of all, Mondale, thank you so much for the question. And it's a very important one. I'm going to keep it a buck. 
I don't think Democrats have a path, um, but I think we have a path to power. And I know in our conversations that you and I have had, you have talked a lot about how we should reclaim the party. It's ours anyways. We're the ones who power it. We are the engine of it. Um, and I deeply believe that. And the Democrats don't have a path without us. So I think that we should start thinking about us as an us and approach the Democratic Party in that way. With that being said, as we come to 2022, we know what has to get done and we finna do it. But I do think that we need to be better about leveraging our power with the party, not just for the party. And that is something that I think as a movement, we really have not coalesced around. Uh, we have had some really progressive folk try to take over inside of the party, but we actually need a coordinated strategy because here's the deal. Black folks are progressive by and large, but that's not how we describe ourselves. And that is not how we see ourselves. And those folks that are doing those takeovers, they don't reflect us. Like they just don't. Right. And so I I'm not clear, right, that those takeovers without a base reflects the strategy that we need to move forward in order to win. So with that being said, I think we can upgrade our car. <laughs> I definitely think we need to upgrade our car. And I also think we need to start dropping folks off. We literally need to start dropping folks off. Like actually get the fuck up out of my car. You ain't acting right. Don't play with my fucking music. I didn't ask you to change the channel. When you in my car, it's my rules. That's how I feel like we should be rolling. And the 1972 Buick ain't that bad if it's cherried. But anyways, we're going to come back to that another time. Mondale, thank you for your question. And actually, is this even a real question? You already know what we need to be doing here. Uh, folks definitely should check out the work of the Black Male Voter Project uh, and make sure that you support. Also, did we mention that Mondale is running for mayor of Enfield, North Carolina? <laughs> so if you haven't supported yet, check out Mondale on Facebook at W. Mondale Robinson. Also, check out MondaleForEnfield.com. And just like that, it's time for our 2021 yearly roundup, the very, very last one of the year. Now, dear listeners, on this final day of 2021, I thought we'd do a different kind of roundup, a roundup of the lessons learned from the year, what we're leaving behind and what we're bringing forward into the new year. First, let me thank Kelly Hayes, who was one of our first guests on this show for this absolutely wonderful exercise. Now, it's no secret, y'all, that 2021 was a complete roller coaster. And I don't say this to be cliche. This year, dear ones, I did all the things that scared me. I left a 17-year relationship that was the most meaningful of my life in order to follow my heart. I led an organization during some of the most bizarre political moments in my lifetime, and we're still here. I bought a house. I built new relationships with some amazing women and a few good men. I took some beautiful trips and I watched sunrises and sunsets. I navigated five staff transitions, a six-month parental leave, and expanded my team to 15 people in an organization that I started that began with a team of two. I had a lot of courageous conversations with other people and myself. I moved away from the safety of what I've always known. I got my heart broken. Basically this year, personally and politically, life and everything I thought I knew about it came crashing down. And now, standing in the rubble, there are some things I'm leaving in 2021. I'm leaving being scared in 2021. Now in 2020, as a new wave of protests swept the country, I started getting death threats again. In 2021, I could see a future that was different than the one I was walking into, and it was completely terrifying. In 2021, white nationalists tried to overthrow the government. Democrats tried to proceed as if it was business as usual. Black folks and our priorities got left behind, and I had no fucking clue how to navigate it. In 2021, everything scared me. 
I've seen firsthand how fear can immobilize you. It can freeze you in place, leaving you in a catatonic state. It can shape your behavior. It can keep you far away from the things and the people that you love. It can change your sense of what you deserve and what you're worth. I think about all the times in my life that I've let opportunities, experiences, and blessings pass me by because I was scared. In 2021, I challenged myself to do shit that scared me, and every time, it was totally worth it. So I'm leaving behind being scared. I refuse to be a prisoner of my fears, and I apologize to myself for all the times I said no to what I needed and wanted to grow. Change takes courage. Forward motion requires a step forward. And so here's what I want to bring with me into 2022. Patience and surrender. Now, this might sound counterintuitive for a lot of us, and trust me, it's counterintuitive to me too. But I've been sitting with this for a while, and honestly, it's my greatest struggle. Patience and surrender. If this year I said yes to everything that scared me, I think I also became addicted to adrenaline or something. That lurching feeling when you're free-falling and you're not sure when it's going to end. Kind of like when you first go off the cliff on a roller coaster. 2021 was a fucking roller coaster. And I realized that the side effect of saying yes is that you get addicted to things lurching forward at warp speed. But here's the thing. Sometimes change happens quickly and sometimes it's as slow as molasses. Both are necessary for progress to occur. Now, I have a friend that we secretly call the turtle. Everything takes forever with them, especially decisions. I mean, they will mull over everything for a thousand years before they take a step. And then the next step is going to take a thousand years, too. So you get the point. Now, me, I'm not really like that. Once I've made up my mind about something, I'm driving it forward. And in my various roles, I have to make a million decisions every single day. And I don't always get to take a thousand years or shit, even a thousand seconds to think about it. Now, I'm not hasty. I can just be more like a bull in a china shop. I'm skilled at inspiring people to take action, which means I got to be ready to move too. And it often means I'm 700 steps ahead. But recently, I've been thinking about the ways in which being a bull in a china shop can sometimes make things move much slower because crashing through the porcelain means you got to clean things up along the way. Now, when I'm patient, knots tend to untangle themselves. Go slow to go fast, as my bestie Marisa Franco, also a past guest on this show, is known to say, and she's definitely known to say it to me. This time I'm going to listen. I'm going slow in order to go fast in 2022. Now, a note on surrender. At first glance, surrender sounds like give up. But actually, surrender can also mean let things unfold. I am the queen of let me go ahead and make this thing happen. I read recently on a blog that one difference between surrender and giving up is this. Surrender looks like taking action steps when appropriate, while giving up looks like shifting all your energy somewhere else. Now, I really liked this when I read it. Surrender here means getting out of your own way. Giving up is closing up shop, boarding up the windows, and wrapping a heavy chain around the building. This year, there were a lot of things that happened in my life that only happened because I had to get out of my own way and surrender. For example, I was holding on tight to this notion that even though I knew I wasn't happy in my relationship and neither was my partner, that's just kind of the way it had to be. But when I surrendered to how I was actually feeling, it created all this room for new possibility. We're still very much in each other's lives. We are the best of friends. And this is actually the relationship that I want with my ex. We didn't give up on us. We surrendered to the possibility that there was something else out there for us. And it's been one of the most meaningful relationships in my life. Brought to you, of course, by Surrender. In 2022, I want to surrender more. To be okay with being unsure, not clear, vulnerable, and to have intimacy without a determined destination. Sometimes the clarity arrives not through hours and hours of tossing it around in your head or processing the shit, but 
my surrendering to the, I don't know, I'm not sure, and let's just see how it unfolds and take action steps when appropriate. Sometimes this means surrendering to your longings and your desires. Sometimes it means surrender to things not turning out exactly as you planned and allowing the unfolding to show you something you hadn't anticipated that then gives you new news that you can use. I am bringing surrender into 2022. All right, my loves, that is it for Lady Don't Take No. Thank you so much to everybody who sent me a question. And thank you to everybody who listens to and supports our little pod that could. I really, really hope to see you at some live shows in the new year. But, you know, that's not up to me. That's up to the Rona. Omarion is crip walking all over my motherfucking plans. And I feel a way about it, child. Can y'all please get vaccinated? Can y'all please get boosted? Can y'all please put on a fucking mask? Please, please. Can y'all stay home when you don't be feeling good? Because real spit, y'all been traveling and shit. Sniffly and all that stuff. You just shedding virus everywhere. Fucking up everything for everybody. Anyhow, we are signing off for the final time in 2021. And we will be back with a brand new show in the brand new year every Friday where we don't fucking know if you're going to have a commute or not. And it's also during my birthday week. That's right. I am turning 40 wonderful. What are you leaving in 2021? And what are you bringing into 2022? Sound off on our socials and let us know. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Facebook or Meta or what the fuck ever at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. And please give a special, special end of the year. We fucking did it. Shout out to our social media maven, Jahari Farrar, for making sure the people always get what they need from our socials. We appreciate you. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Thank you, Phil. We love you. Happy New Year. Our incredible theme is Bioterics. This pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, be good to yourselves and each other. Wrap it up, back it up, get vaxxed and boosted, and let's work together to keep Omarion from crip walking all over the place. <laughs> That's right, I said it because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no, she insists on respect the sister, walk around like a woman. She won't speak, less it's something worse saying, don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curious, she got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Love y'all. Happy New Year. Like